You can turn in your Bible uh, to Matthew chapter 20. We're continuing in this uh, series that we're calling Kingdom Come. And uh, we're looking at what Jesus is teaching us about what his kingdom is meant to look like. And what we see over and over and over again in this section of scripture is that uh, Jesus' kingdom really doesn't look much like the kingdoms of earth. Like most of it is counterintuitive. Most of it is, is almost the opposite of what we would expect it uh, to be. And today will be no exception. Uh, and so, um, yeah, Matthew chapter 20, we're going to be looking at just one specific parable uh, this morning. And uh, I want to begin, uh, many of you know, uh, my wife and I have uh, four kids. The oldest one's 14. Uh, the youngest is down to 10 months. And, um, and then we have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old in the middle. And so the, our two middle daughters are right in the midst of like the tooth, ver- tooth fairy like area of their life, right, where there's teeth popping out left and right. And, um, and so a couple years ago, uh, the eight-year-old at that time, uh, you know, she had lost, she actually lost two teeth on the same day. Uh, which is usually my kid's strategy because their teeth get loose and they don't like to pull them out. So they just leave them in and leave them in and then they kind of wedge together with other ones. And so then one comes out and they just start kind of cascading out, right? So, uh, so she lost two teeth in one day and we're like, wow, that's pretty significant. So we're talking about uh, negotiating with the tooth fairy, like, hey, what do we need to do here to, to honor this? And, um, and uh, Eloise is a real negotiator. So she actually wrote a note to the tooth fairy and said, hey, so I want you to know that I lost two teeth today, so obviously that, that is something special. Uh, also, I'd like to te- keep, I want to retain the rights to the teeth, so <laughs> I want to hang on to them, uh, but I'll still take the money. And also, my little sister would really like some money too, if you would be willing to give her some money. So it's quite the, uh, quite the, the negotiation, so, uh, so we talked it over, and so uh, it ended up the next morning when she woke up, there was $4 under her pillow for the two teeth, and then there was a dollar under her little sister's pillow just, just because, right? So, so we did that. Now, flash forward here, uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, Evelyn lost her first teeth, and wouldn't you know it, she lost two on the same day as well, right? So she, so she lost two teeth on the same day, and, uh, and Katrina and I are talking, we're like, I don't remember what the tooth fairy did last time. I remember she lost, I remember Eloise lost two. I don't remember how much we gave or whatever. So anyways, um, and there was another note, a secondary note uh, written by Eloise because Evie's not old enough to write it yet, but it said, hey, my sister Evelyn lost two teeth. She wants to keep her teeth. She wants to retain the teeth. And also, uh, it's now tradition that the other sister also gets money (laughs) for no good reason. So, uh, so we couldn't really remember, so we just kind of like, oh, let's just, you know, and so the next morning they wake up, Evelyn has $8 under her pillow, and Eloise has two <laughs> for nothing, right? So, so as you can imagine, Evelyn was excited because their entire life is in a, really centers around watching YouTube videos, identifying toys that they want, gathering money, and then going to Target to buy those toys, right? That's like the cycle of their life, and so... Um, so Evelyn was really excited because now she's got eight bucks to go spend at Target. So she was really excited. But you can imagine how Eloise, our older one, felt. She was like, wait a minute. <laughs> she's like, when I lost two teeth, I only got $4 and she got $8. That's not fair, right? And that's how our hearts tend to work a lot of times. We, uh, instead of taking joy, I mean, she had been shown abundant grace and generosity. She got $2 that she didn't in any way, shape, or form deserve, and yet instead of celebrating the $2 that she got, she was mad about the fact that she had gotten four a couple years ago, and now her sister had gotten eight. And that's the, the heart of what that is that resides in all of us 
is what we're going to be digging into this morning, that, that Jesus says, hey, in, in, in my kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, it's not like that. That's not how it functions in my kingdom. Um, and, and man, if you guys are anything like me, it's definitely something that I wrestle with, uh, this, this idea of comparison, this idea of my joy is relative to how uh, far ahead I think I'm getting of other people by comparison, right? And so uh, it's just something that God wants to, to break out in our heart. And so he gives us this parable that we find in Matthew 20 to speak about that uh, this morning. So let me read it, and then we'll pray and we'll, and we'll dive in. So Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 begins, uh, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, uh, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? Well, they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank, you for, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your desire to communicate to us uh, the ways of your kingdom, uh, that you don't just leave us to wonder about who you are and what you are like and what you desire from us and how to be right with you, that, that you lay it out clearly in your scripture and that if we will come uh, with open hearts and a desire to understand that you will unfold it for us. And so I pray that you'll do that today, uh, God. I pray that it's the nature of parables that there's confusing elements to it, and, and some of the truth is hidden. But I pray that uh, out of the generosity of your heart and your desire to be known, that you would reveal yourself to us through this story this morning um, so that you could be glorified and we could be closer to you. Uh, open up our hearts, Lord. Um, help us not to harden our hearts, but to have hearts that are soft, that are open, um, that are ready to be changed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, so it's a real direct and simple uh, thing that we're going at this morning, and it's really to just unpack this parable and understand what is it uh, that, that Jesus is trying to say to us about his kingdom. So three things. What is he trying to say to us about the kingdom this morning? Uh, second, we're going to look at the different individual parts, the actors in the, in the parable, and try and understand who they are and what they represent. And then third, uh, we're going to come with this question of how should we adjust our thinking and our actions in response to these truths. So, so what's the point they're trying to make? How does he make the point? And then what do we do uh, once we see what that is? And so first, uh, we start with all, the, the most challenging point, which is what is the point of the parable? Now, if you're familiar with the way that Jesus taught, he would often use parables. And parables are really just simple uh, stories that use common, everyday images to convey a single point. 
right? And so a parable is not meant to be this multifaceted uh, Lord of the Rings analogy where you're like, you know, who does Aragorn represent and what, you know, what is the ring of power? It, it's, it's really meant to make one clear, simple point. And, uh, and so I think the crux of this parable really comes towards the back half of the story uh, when it comes time to be paid, right? And so we see the master paying with generosity those who don't deserve it. And then we see those that, that believe that they have been owed something, uh, they begin to grumble and they begin, begin to become angry with the, with the master for what he has done. And that's really the heart of what it's pointing at. And I think that what Jesus is pointing out here is that the kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom of comparisons and hierarchy, right? It's, it's, not a, it's not a kingdom. You're not checking your kingdom rankings to see, uh, to see where you're at. Rather, it's a kingdom of grace generosity, and justice. Not a kingdom of comparison and hierarchy. It's a kingdom of grace, generosity, and justice. Now, those are some big concepts, some big ideas. So, so as we begin to look at the different elements of the parable, I think some of that will begin to become more clear. And so the first thing we want to look at is uh, who are the, the, the primary actors in this? And so the first one is the master of the house. Uh, now, you can probably guess, right, that the, the master of the house is representative of God. Uh, and so, so the, he's, uh, this is meant to depict something to us, to teach us something about who God is and what God is like. And I want you to think about, as you hear these things, does this square with what you think of? When you think of God, when you think about the nature of God, his characteristics, uh, the way that he interacts with us as his creation, uh, does, does what we see about God here match up with the way that you tend to think about him? And so the first thing is that he is continually inviting those who are willing to labor in his vineyard. Right? He goes out first thing in the morning, he says, he says I'm looking for workers, and those that are uh, willing to receive the invitation to come and work with him, come and they begin to work. And then he goes out again, and he brings more, and then he goes out again, and he brings more. And even to the very end of the day, he goes out and says, hey, you still haven't worked? Come, come in, right? It's this picture of, of a God who is not standing back saying, hey, if you want to come, you know where to find me, right? Uh, he's, not, he's not distant where they have to, to go on this epic trek and journey to try and find him, he goes into the marketplace. He takes action. He's proactive in going to them and saying, hey, I want you to come and to be with me. Will you accept my invitation? And that's the way that God functions in our lives. He continues to reach out to us. He continues uh, to, to extend his grace, to extend his mercy, to extend the invitation uh, to be a part of his kingdom. And you notice he doesn't even go to those in the 11th hour. This is how we picture God sometimes, right? You would think he goes up to those at the 11th hour, and, and you would think he would say, like, hey, I'm just showing up to tell you guys you missed the boat, okay? <laughs> I've been here all day. I've been inviting people in. It's been awesome, and you missed out, and I just want you to know the big thing, right? But that's not how God is. God says, hey, it's not too late. I know you think you missed your opportunity. I know you think that that ship has sailed. I think you think that no one is going to accept you, but I'm ready to accept you in. Even at this late hour, I want you to come and to be with me. And maybe that's a word for somebody here this morning. Maybe you're here and you think like, man, I missed, I missed my chance. Uh, I'm too old. I'm, I've, I've done too much. I'm too broken. I'm too sinful. I've done things, God will never accept me. Well, what this parable points us to is that, that God continues to pursue relationship and brings in at the end even those who no one else wanted, who were rejected by everyone else. 
But he says, come and be with me. That's a good picture of God. We see that God is just in this parable, right? Whatever he says to them uh, when he goes out in the middle of the day, he says, hey, whatever is right, I will give it to you. Just come work for me. I'm not going to promise you a wage, but, but count on the fact that I will give you what is just. And in the end, when they come and they complain to him, he says, hey, I haven't done you any wrong. I kept my word. That God keeps his promises, and the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, he will do what is just, what is right. Uh, Man, there's lots of times people, um, they want to come with these sort of like riddles and brain teasers and say, well, what about uh, this person that's born in this remote village out in the middle of, of nowhere, and they never get a chance to read the Bible or hear about Jesus? All I can say is the Bible tells me that God will do what is right. <laughs> and, and, I, and I rely on that. That, that. That's his nature. That's his character, that he is a just God. Now, the, some of the workers thought that he was being unjust, but in reality, he kept the contract that he had made with them. They came to an agreement, and he kept his part of the deal. We see that he pursues and gladly welcomes those that no one else wants. I talked about this a little bit already, right? That, that those workers that were hanging around the 11th hour, he says, why are you still here? And they're like, well, nobody wanted to hire us, right? Those that were outcasts. Um, and, and this isn't probably a bunch of people that look like, uh, like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, right? Like, uh, they're, they're probably not like these muscle-bound, like, let me cut your grapes, right? Like, they're... They're probably people that people said, hey, I'll take you to work, and I'll take you to work, and I'll take you to work, right? They were the ones that got skipped over. They were the ones that were viewed as as lesser or unworthy by some in their culture. And yet he goes and says, I want you. Every one of you in this room, I can promise you that God wants you to be a part of his kingdom. He doesn't celebrate when you sin and and you go further away from him. He wants you to draw near to him. He's been making that clear abundantly over the past several weeks in these passages we've been looking at, right? He is abundantly gracious and generous. He's, he, he gives many in this story, the majority of these people in the story, get far more than they could ever deserve. And he gives it out of the graciousness of his heart. He's generous. In fact, it's his generosity that causes the original group to complain against him. And yet, he still seeks to make peace. He looks at him and says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. He doesn't look at him and say, hey, you're going to complain? You know what? Give me that denarius back. Get out of here, right? He says, no, look, I want peace with you. You misunderstand my generosity. I don't want you to go away mad. I want you to, to go away celebrating my goodness. God doesn't want separation from us. He's not pointing the finger down at you. He's not laughing when you make mistakes. Uh, he's not celebrating when you fall. He wants you to be close to him. We see also that he is sovereign and right to do what he chooses with what belongs to him. He says, he says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? That God owns it all, right? He's the creator of the universe. He created this world. He created, he created everything in it. He created each one of us. And so ultimately, he's fully within his rights to do whatever he chooses. And, and thank God, that he is right, and he is just, and he is good, and he is loving, and he is compassionate. So we can trust him to do the right thing, but ultimately, who are we to begrudge him to do what he wants <laughs> with what is his? Finally, we see that he's not stingy, cheap, or withholding. It's actually not stinginess or cheapness, but it's his generosity uh, that causes the division with the others. And so, so I want to ask you this morning, is it, you know, does that square with your idea of God? 
Does that picture that, that's painted of God in this parable match up with what you think and believe about God? Because if you have, uh, if you have the wrong conceptions about who he is, it's going to me- lead you to make wrong conclusions about why he does things the way that he does. Now, the second element that we've got we've to unpack here is this idea of the payment, right? A denarius was the standard wage for a day's labor at that time. So, uh, so if you worked hard for one day, you would earn one denarius. That was kind of the, the standard wage, uh, the... Not really minimum wage, right? But it was just it was it was the living wage that they would get. Um, uh, but most commentators believe that what they're talking about here, when he talks about the wage, it's really pointing to salvation. Uh, it's talking about who receives salvation, and this is one of those things where a parable has a limited scope, right? So a parable is not saying, "Hey, eternal salvation is a worth about one day's work," right? It's not it's not trying to make that parallel. It's it's not trying to draw that point. He's giving them something that's of immeasurable worth. It's priceless. It's of incredible value. Um, and the point of the parable is directed at those who would resent others who receive the same payment for what is, in their view, lesser or inferior works or no works at all. See, when you have a works-based mentality about salvation, uh, your assumption is generally, hey, I know I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the top but I'm probably here. I was probably in that group that got called in at, you know, three hours into the day. So I worked pretty hard. I, you know, I suffered through a good bit of the heat, and, and I'm, I'm pretty deserving. Um, but man, those people, they don't deserve it, right? So we always tend to put ourselves in the top half. We tend to think that, that we're more deserving um, than, than others. But, but he says the kingdom doesn't work that way. It doesn't function that way at all. The work that they were doing in the vineyard, this is really laboring for the kingdom, right? The good works that each worker does for the kingdom. But it's significant to understand that they can't enter into this work unless and until they are invited into it by the master. These people may have worked on other vineyards. They may have worked in other places. They may have been doing other things. But it didn't become kingdom work until the master went to them and said, I invite you to come and work with me. So there's lots of good things that we can do in our life. There's lots of, uh, you know, we can help little old ladies across the street. We can, uh, you know, we can uh, go to Aldi and when somebody offers to give you a quarter for the car, you say, no, no, you take it. I don't need the quarter, right? Like we can rack up all these good accomplishments, but they aren't kingdom accomplishments until the master invites us in, right? It's, it's God who initiates the relationship. It's God who gives the opportunity. But then once he's invited them to the vineyard, the work that they're doing is work for the kingdom. The other fascinating thing about this is even though they believe that they are working to earn a wage, it really becomes clear by the end of the story that the payment isn't based at all on the quality or quantity of their work. Rather, it's based on the grace and generosity of the master and their response to his invitation to enter into the vineyard. Everyone who responded to his invitation, no matter how early or late, received the wage. Right? Whether they said yes at 6 a.m. or whether they said yes at 5 p.m., he ultimately was going to give them the payment. And so even though they thought they were working to earn it, what becomes clear at the end is that, that their receipt of it was not based on how, how hard and diligent and well they worked. It was based on the generous heart of, of the one who was paying them. And so it's a picture of the kingdom. When we work for the kingdom, when we do work in the kingdom, it's not to earn God's favor. It's not to earn salvation. It's not to earn his love. It's significant. It's important. It's vital. But we have to understand the motivation behind it. 
So the last piece that we'll, we'll pull apart here is the laborers, and then we'll begin to look at how we should apply these things. Um, so there's these different groups of laborers, right? The first ones are those that were hired first thing in the morning, right? They got up early, they ate their, their Wheaties, they got down to the marketplace early, they were ready to work, they had their work boots on, right? Um, they had an expectation of what they would be owed for a day's work, right? Uh, they worked hard through the toughest part of the day, they carried the burden, they really did work harder than everybody else with the sweat of their brow, and they agreed to a denarius at the beginning of the day, and they felt like that was a fair wage. They said, hey, this is a good deal, I'm going to go work for you, you're going to pay me, this is fair, this is right, this is just. Um, some people point to and think that these are people that get saved early in their life. People who come to faith in Christ at a young age, and then spend a lifetime devoted to Christ, doing work. Uh, for the kingdom, accomplishing things, seeing fruit of their labor. Others would say that, that this group represents those that have the most desirable qualities, right? These are the cream of the crop, the people that are eloquent speakers and that they're gifted and they're, they're charismatic and they can, they can accomplish a lot and they're efficient and they get things done and they're, uh, they're just really valuable. They're like number one draft picks, but not like Markel Fultz number one draft picks, but like, but like a different kind of draft pick that pans out, right? <laughs> um, I love Markel. I hope he does well. Um, but regardless of how we look at this group, this is a group that believes that they have earned their wage and they are deserving of it. They believe that the master of the vineyard owes them something. This group believes that they've worked hard and that hard work has earned them something uh, in the eyes of he that would pay them, right? Uh, the second group is the people that are kind of hired throughout the day. So it talks about the third hour. So basically, if we start at 6 a.m., the third hour is basically 9 a.m. The sixth hour is 12 p.m. noon. Uh, the ninth hour is about 3 p.m., right? So throughout the day, he keeps going into the market. And to that group, he doesn't say, I'll give you a denarius for your day's work. He just says, hey, come work for me, and I'll pay you what's fair. I'll pay you what's right. You can count on me. And so they do. They enter in throughout the course. And then finally, we have those that are hired in the 11th hour, which is equivalent of essentially 5 p.m. It's almost quitting time, right? Uh, they're simply told to go. They're not even told anything about payment. He's like, why didn't you? They're like, nobody hired us. He's like, go to the vineyard, right? <laughs> Just go to the vineyard. And they go. Now, some would relate these to, uh, to somebody who, who essentially lives a life full of uh, just self-indulgent, um, sin and just choosing whatever, and then on their deathbed makes a profession of faith in Christ, right? When it's too late to actually really earn any, any fruit or, 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 or to, to, do, to do any works for the kingdom, basically a, a last-minute uh, profession of faith. Others would point to it uh, being somebody who has done some really wicked, horrible things where they're considered unworthy um, to be into the kingdom, that they would be undesirable. I was reading an article this week that was talking about, do you guys remember the serial uh, killer uh, Jeffrey Dahmer uh, from years ago? And he was in jail and ultimately ended up being killed by another inmate. But, um, but there was reports, he did interviews and things where he came to a place where he professed a faith in Christ. He said that he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, was that a genuine, I, you know, that's between him and God. We don't know. We're not in a position to stand. But some people would look at it, and that's what they would say, this 11th hour group. Like, wait a minute. You can, you can kill people. You can be a, a serial killer, and you could still enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? It's, it's, they would say it's, it's people that it doesn't seem right or just that they would be able uh, to enter in. But regardless of how you classify this group, this is the group that knows that they are not deserving of a full day's wage or payment. They go into it saying, like, I know that I do not deserve to get paid, right? I didn't do anything, or I came in really late. And so they have this awareness of their undeserving nature. 
So what does this mean for all of us? How, how, do, how do we apply this parable? How do, how do we think about this in our lives? Well, the first thing I want, want you to think about is, where do you place yourself in this story? How do we place ourselves properly in this story? If this is a story, is this a story of grace or is it a story of injustice? Well, it really depends on who you empathize with this in the story, right? <laughs> if your tendency is to empathize with those early morning workers, you're going to look at it and say, man, those guys got a raw deal. They got up there early. They did everything that was right. They worked hard all day. And then they got paid the same as those people that barely did anything at all. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem just. And so if you enter in it with their viewpoint, you can look at this and say, man, I'm not sure I like what this is saying. (laughs) But I want to encourage you, if if that's how you're thinking, just for a moment, to think about how it would feel if you were one of those 11th hour hirees, right? How grateful and joyous would you feel if you'd spent all day in the market and nobody wanted to hire you? Nobody was willing to take you in. People looked over you and said, nah, not that one. I'll take somebody else. And at the last minute, when you had lost hope, when you thought that there was, there was no way forward, that someone came and said, hey, come with me. I, I want you. I want, I want you to come. And even though you got there too late to do anything, they still paid you a full day's wage. Man, how joyous would you be? How, how much would you celebrate the character of the master of the vineyard? How much would you say, that is a good and generous and gracious and loving person, right? So it all depends on our perspective, where we put ourselves in the story, who we empathize with, who we connect with is going to depend on how we, how we feel about this. And I just want to caution you with this. The Bible continually calls out the heart of the entitled follower of God. The Bible is continually calling the one who thinks that God owes them something to a place of repentance. Uh, we just started a, a study this past week in the book of Jonah with a, a group from here, and we're, and we're looking at Jonah, and, and it's a classic tale, right? Jonah disobeys God, and then God sends a storm against him, which is fair and just, right? I disobeyed you, I get the penalty. Um, and then he sends a big fish to rescue him, which if Jonah had his choice, he probably would have picked a different way of being rescued, right? That probably was not his first choice, and yet God used it as, an, as, as a means of grace, uh, it was also partially a punishment, maybe, I don't know. But, but anyways, he gets spit up on dry land, and then he says, okay, now I'm going to obey you, God. So he goes to Nineveh, their sworn enemies, and he says, okay, you guys have been disobeying God. Get ready for the storm. Here it comes, baby. <laughs> this is what happened to me, and this is what I want to happen to you, right? You're going to experience the wrath of God. And when he goes in there, instead of sending the storm, God sends mercy. He sends forgiveness. He sends grace. And how does Jonah respond? He's mad. That's not fair, God. You made me pay for my sins. Why don't they have to pay for their sins, right? And God says, man, you don't get my heart. There's these incredible parallels between the story of Jonah and the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells, right? Where the younger brother goes out, he lives a a life of loose living and licentiousness and, and all this craziness, and then he comes back in and the father throws a party and he celebrates. And the older brother comes, and what's he say? says, I already did everything that you told me to do, and you never even gave me a small goat to have a party with my friends. Right? We wouldn't be that excited about a goat today, right? <laughs> Contextually. You took him to the Cheesecake Factory, and all I wanted was some Wendy's, and you wouldn't even give me that, right? But he says, you're not just. He complains about his father's lavish grace and mercy. And the parable makes it clear, hey, 
the elder brother was in the wrong, right? He was allowing his heart uh, to get in the way of his relationship with his father. The woman caught in adultery, right? The, the town drags her out with stones in their hands, ready to stone her. They say, hey, Jesus, she was caught in adultery. What should we do? Should we kill her? And Jesus says, hey, let the one without sin cast the first stone. And little by little, they, they came to realize, hey, maybe we're not those 6 a.m. workers that we thought we were. <laughs> maybe, we, maybe we came into it a little bit late, too. The Pharisees, classic example, right? The Pharisees hated everybody. Children, tax collectors, prostitutes, fishermen, <laughs> uh, Romans, Greeks. They didn't like anybody who wasn't them because they felt that they were entitled to the love of God. They were entitled to a relationship with God because of their lineage with Abraham and because of their, their righteous works that they did and their giving. Uh, and so anyone who they deemed as less than them, they couldn't fathom them entering into the kingdom of heaven. And so God is continually warning us against this spirit that thinks we are the in people and those guys are the out people. And so when we read this story, we have, to, we have to adopt this attitude of those that came into the game late. He talked, we looked a couple weeks ago, he said, he said, God is like a shepherd who will leave the 99 that never stray and go after the one that does stray away. And I guess my question is, are there really 99 that never stray? <laughs> if they are, I'm not one of them, Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the one that strayed, and he came and got me. Paul calls himself uh, the chief of sinners. The apostle Paul planted all these churches. Literally millions of people have come to know Christ because of his writings in the Bible, because of the work that he did in, in planting churches. And he said, all the work that I did was rubbish, and I'm the chief of sinners and undeserving of, of God's grace and mercy. So if that's Paul's estimation of himself, would you rate your work better or lesser than what Paul had done? The Bible is really here to point us to a place of humility, right? For those who understand the heart of the gospel, we relate to those workers who were undeserving of the wage, and we joyously celebrate God's extravagant and generous grace towards us. So that's the first thing. Where do you place yourself in the story? The second thing, um, how do we avoid the trap of comparison? Look what comparison did here. It, it robbed these workers of their joy, and it made them despise the good and gracious nature of the master of the vineyard. They looked at something that was beautiful and worthy of celebration, and instead their heart was darkened, and they were angry, and they were bitter about it. And that's what comparison does. It's what led the Pharisees to look at a man who had been lame from the time he was born and when he jumped up and was dancing and singing praises to God, instead of saying, like, this is amazing, wow, God, they said, how could he do this on the Sabbath, right? It robs joy, and it does the same thing to us, right? When you're looking around on Facebook or Instagram or, or wherever you're looking and, and you see that perfect family, the people that have the family that you've always wanted and desired, but your family looks nothing like that, or, or the relationship that you want, or the job that you want, or if I'm being honest, right, when I'm scrolling through Instagram and I see, uh, you know, hey, hey, we're just celebrating. We baptized 200 people last week, right? And I should be like, what? That's amazing, too. But part of me is like, oh, wow, okay, good for them, you know, <laughs> all right? <laughs> we got a tub, God, if you want to send 200 people, right? We, we all have these moments where we compare ourselves, and instead of celebrating God's goodness, 
we, we, we get this bitterness. It's so weird, right? It's, it's, it's like um, because we're self-absorbed. We're, we're self-focused. We only think about ourselves, and we only think about how these things impact and affect us and what reflection they have on us. If these 6 a.m. workers, if they could have been objective, they could have looked at it and been like, wow, what an incredible, generous, and gracious thing for him to do. That's amazing. But they couldn't get outside of their own, their own world. And, and that's, what, that's what he wants us to do. So we need to avoid the comparison trap, also because it will lead us to grumbling. And if there's one thing that's clear in the Old Testament, it's that God hates grumbling. He really does. He hates it. Um, the, the nation of Israel, when they were wandering around in the wilderness, part of the reason they couldn't go into the promised land is their continued grumbling. I mean, he sent these incredible miracles. He brought them by a pillar of fire and smoke across the Red Sea, and they get to the other side, and they're like, oh, what's for dinner? Ugh. <laughs> right? Man, God, I guess you didn't think about planning ahead for food, right? <laughs> and we do the same thing. God brings us through amazing things. He does incredible things for us. But as soon as things get a little uncomfortable or difficult, we're like, oh, I guess this one escaped your, your vision, God. I guess you didn't plan for this, right? He doesn't, the reason that God hates grumbling is because it's, um, it's, it's, um, it's essentially saying to God, like, hey, you're wrong. It's saying, you don't know as well as I know. Uh, you messed up on this one. And God is never wrong. <laughs> He's never selfish. He's never unjust in what he does. He is perfect. And so to disparage his name and his character in that way, is, um, it's damaging to us, ultimately, because it allows us to set up idolatry in our heart where we think that we know better than God. It also leads you to begrudge God's generosity to others, right? So where do you put yourself in the story? How do you, how do you intentionally avoid that comparison trap? Third, how do you love with the heart of the Father? And this is the answer to those first two, right? When you hear the story about Jesus on the cross hanging between two thieves, and the one thief is ridiculing him, but the other one says, hey, this man doesn't deserve this. We deserve this, but he doesn't deserve this. And Jesus looks at him and says, today you'll be in the kingdom with me. Do you celebrate that? Do you say, yes, that's amazing. That somebody that, I mean, talk about the 11th hour, it was like 11.59 for this guy, right? <laughs> and yet he enters in. Now, would you feel the same way if you, it was your family that he stole from? Clearly he had committed a crime and been judged and found guilty and, and given the death penalty. What if it was your family that he stole from? Would you still be able to celebrate that he came in? I mean, make it pointed. Think about these doors back here. Uh, is there a person, a specific person? Is there a group of people that if they walked through that door with repentant hearts and a desire to know God that you would look back and be like, uh-uh, nope, nope, I don't, I don't want them in here. If, if, if you do, there, there's something wrong in the heart. We don't have the heart of God. God's not willing that any should perish. It's a desire that all would come. And that's where that whole forgiveness thing comes in that he's talking about. Whoever it is, whatever they've done, if they reach a place where they're willing to ask for forgiveness and repentantly seek God, we should celebrate that. Because we're really not that different in our own hearts. We've experienced that grace, and we should want others to experience it as well. The final thing I'll say is this, the fourth thing. Develop a biblical understanding of grace, works, and rewards. When it comes to grace and works, we tend to get very polarized into a couple different camps, and we don't want to, uh, the people that are grace are all grace, and they don't even want to sniff works, and the people that are works, uh, they kind of accept grace as being some intangible thing out there, but they don't really want to talk about it. But Jesus weaves all three, grace, works, and reward. He just weaves through this parable in a seamless way where they're not in conflict with one another. 
And so we have to understand three things. Number one, uh, salvation is by grace alone. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. There's no argument, right? It's the free gift of God that is given to us, not of our own works, lest anyone should boast, right? That salvation is by grace alone. We don't earn our salvation. We can't, we can't do it. We can't do enough good things to get God to say, you're good enough. You're in. If we could, then it would have been cruel and wrong for him to send Jesus to die on the cross. If we could get there by ourselves, then Jesus' death would have had no point. It would have been senseless. We can't get there on our own. So it's only by grace that we're invited in, in the same way that the, the master of the vineyard went into the marketplace and he invited them in. If he never extends that offer, they can't come and work in the vineyard. It's only by grace that we enter in. But once we have entered in to the vineyard, it's natural that we're going to get to work, right? <laughs> Works are the natural fruit of those who have received salvation. The Bible never shows Jesus as a Savior disconnected from Jesus as Lord. There's not, it's not two options. He, it's a full package. <laughs> At the moment you receive him as your Savior, he becomes your Lord. And what he says is what you do because you've entered into the kingdom where he is the king, Right? And so uh, there's no magic words that get us into heaven. If your plan is to live a crazy life that, that escalates and spirals up to a bank robbery and stealing a Lamborghini, and as you're driving it off the cliff into the ocean, you say, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior, before you hit the water. If that's your plan, it's not going to work, right? The words are just a reflection of our heart. We can't put our faith in, well, I said these words, you know, I said these words. The words just come out of a changed and transformed heart. When your heart is transformed by the Holy Spirit and you know who Jesus is and what he has done and how much he has saved you from, the natural result of that is that you're going to go forward working for the kingdom, for the name of Jesus, and helping others to see this incredible thing that you found, this treasure. You're not holding the treasure for yourself. You're trying to share the treasure with as many people as you can so that they can experience what you've experienced. That's the natural outworking. And so, yes, works will happen out of a transformed heart. They don't save us, but they will happen. And, and thirdly, rewards. God is a good father. He's going to bless his children. But that's not our motivation. If you're checking your heavenly 401k, <laughs> be like, man, the balance is good. It's diversified. I'm, I got my treasures in heaven. You get really weird, like, don't thank me for anything I do, because it says in the Bible that if you thank me here on earth, I've received my reward, but I want to I defer that to heaven, right? Like, if our motivation is that we're just trying to stockpile in heaven, that's just greed, right? We've just transferred earthly greed to heavenly greed, and that's not what God is calling us to do. We work because of what Jesus has done out of a reflection of his grace for us. And yes, God is a good God who loves us, and he will give us rewards, but that's not our motivation. We do it whether we would get rewards or not. But Jesus says, hey, doesn't a good father give his children good things? And how much better is God <laughs> than any earthly father? So yes, there will be rewards. But it flows out of the heart of God. When we understand those three things in balance, then we can live a life of meaning and purpose and we can work hard for the kingdom and celebrate. If we work our entire life, and someone else enters in on their deathbed, we can celebrate that because that's the character and the nature of God. But I want to encourage you this. Don't try and run somebody else's race. Don't judge the success or failure of your life based on the person sitting next to you. God has written a path for you to follow. And the more that you compare it with other people around you or other people, uh, the more joy is going to get stolen away. The more that you're going to question 
God's good nature? Just go in freedom. And when you pray, say, God, what do you have for me? What is it that you want me to do? Because that's really all that matters in the end, right? Let's pray.